Scripture reading for tonight comes from Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 21. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the lad and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your descendants be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down over against him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let, let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat over against him, the child lifted up his voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. The Bible spins against the way it dries. There's a story it wants to tell, but it keeps interrupting itself, blurting out irreverences in a way, like the Bible has Tourette's, some tick that it can't control. It keeps undermining its own plot, like some joker or prophet or joker prophet followed around the official storytellers, banging drums to distract the main guys, yelling out these obfuscations. Or maybe there was a subversive scribe who just quietly planted these seeds. Or maybe it was some insurgent woman who snuck in at night, replaced the pages in the manuscripts with her own texts to undermine patriarchy. Anyway, it's brilliant. I love that this is the scripture we get. If there's some chance, and I doubt this is very realistic, but you know, we're free to imagine. If there's some chance that there was a woman behind some of these little anarchies, this might be the story. The story of Hagar. I mean, why is she in the book at all? There are, pretty, there are two pretty long and detailed stories given over to her. Even though these narratives undermine, really, what the rest of the story is trying to tell. This is the Hebrew scripture, after all. It's about Israel, how this particular nation came to be what it was and where it was going. It's about Abraham's heirs through Isaac, God's blessing of the Jews. 
But the story we read tonight thrusts out in a totally different direction. It's about Abraham's other son. It's about the other son, the other woman. Hagar's name means other, outsider. Who let her in? For as little a role as it seems that she should have, she's really quite tremendous. So the story we read against was the second segment, which is a lot like the first one, actually, which we didn't read. But it's the story that Sarah, Abraham's wife, can't get pregnant, and she knows that there needs to be an heir, so she tells Abraham to have sex with her Egyptian maid, Hagar. And Hagar gets pregnant. Sarah, theoretically, should be happy, but she isn't. My version of the Bible says that once Hagar got pregnant, she looked at Sarah with contempt. But that's not the best translation. The Hebrew is really much softer than that. Something along the lines of Hagar looked at Sarah with less esteem. This could have been because Sarah forced her to have sex with her 85-year-old husband. Maybe it was because Sarah was asking her to bear a child that she'd have to give away. Maybe they'd been friends before now, and now this. I don't know, but there seems to be like there could be a lot of reasons for Hagar to like Sarah a little bit less. But whatever the case Sarah tells Abraham, she doesn't like the way that Hagar looked at her. Seriously. She tells Abraham, I didn't like the way that woman was looking at me. Sarah's menopausal. Prone, I'm guessing, to irritable misinterpretation. (laughs) Who knows what Hagar was thinking when she looked at Sarah? But Abraham says, okay, go ahead and do what you want to do with her. And so Sarah deals harshly with her. Maybe she yelled at her. Maybe she beat her. It seems like it must have been something pretty awful because it makes Hagar flee. She's not going to take it. And so she goes out into the wilderness where the angel of the Lord finds her and says, you know, you should go back because behold, you shall bear a son and you shall call him Ishmael. This won't be the last time that you hear that line in the Bible. But it is the very first. Hagar, man, this is the first annunciation. Behold, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name. Ring a bell? Christmas time? And then God gives her, she, woman, the same promise that God gave Abraham, the patriarch. I will greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. And then... Hagar gives this God who has promised to make of her a great nation a name. She's the first person in the Bible to call God by name. She names God, a a name that she seems to make up in the spur of the moment. It's really this sort of thrilling audacity. She names God the God who sees. Pretty good name, if you ask me. 
And so she does go back, and she has her son in a home instead of in the wilderness, which is probably a pretty good move in terms of their ability to survive. And some stuff happens, and Sarah miraculously gets pregnant and has her son Isaac, the true heir. And then at this celebration, the festival of Isaac's weaning, I think we should have more festivals, like when our children quit nursing. A festival. But so there's this big party, and I'm I'm sure that Sarah's drinking, because, you know, she couldn't have drunk before. And maybe she's a mean drunk, I don't know. But she sees Ishmael playing with Isaac at this party, and she gets very upset. And she decides that Hagar and Ishmael should be sent to the wilderness to die. There's a lot of midrash on this text. The rabbis ask a lot of questions about it and propose a lot of answers because it invites a lot of questions. Sarah wants to send a little boy and his mother to the wilderness to die? Why? A lot of the rabbis defend Sarah here. They say, Well, she was just a very incisive judge of humanity. She knew that Abraham's two sons could never live peacefully together. She had this sort of clinical decisiveness. Maybe you know the type of person. Whereas Abraham tended to be so clouded by his sense of the multifacetedness of everything, attended to attentive to everyone's varying needs, emotionally entangled. Abraham, the father of faith, is so open to life that one thing, one path, one way of seeing is impossible for him. But Sarah has laser beam vision that distangles complexity and cuts to the quick, so some rabbis say. She says the slave woman's son will not share inheritance with my son. But Abe, being the sort of guy that he is, is deeply troubled by this pronouncement. But God tells him to do what his wife says. Some rabbis rush in to say, see, the voice of God and the voice of Sarah are one. I doubt it. And so then there's this wrenching scene where Hagar is sent away into the desert and Abraham puts her little boy on her back and gives her some bread and a little bit of water. But when the water's gone, Hagar puts her dying boy under a bush and sits down and cries, please don't make me see my baby die. Can you imagine? I can. And she weeps and the child weeps and the God who sees, sees Hagar and her child. And he says, Don't be afraid. Lift up the lad and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make of him a great nation. This is so definitely a story that spins against the way it drives. The voice of Sarah and the voice of God are clearly not one. I'm not even sure if God has one very easily discernible voice. But at any rate, God is not yielding to the official, canonical, patriarchal, Hebrew plot here. It's like the story knows what it wants to tell. Isaac is the chosen one. The Israelites are the chosen people. But then there's this intense narrative dropped into it. 
So Hagar and Ishmael survive in the wilderness, and actually they thrive. And there's a small line at the end of this story that you might not even notice, but it's really very startling. It's really quite fantastic. It says, says, Hagar finds a wife for her son. This is actually the only time in the entire Bible that a woman finds a wife for her son. Men find wives for their boys. It's a patriarchy. You don't let a woman in to mess with the lines. Hagar messes with the lines. Seriously. A lot of people, like biblical scholars, have been noting lately how much her story parallels the story of Abraham. She takes the first son into the wilderness, where his death seems imminent, until an angel speaks and shows her a well. Abraham takes the second son up Mount Moriah, where his death seems imminent, until an angel speaks and shows him a ram. And it's crazy how much the language in these stories totally parallel each other. Sometimes it's the exact same words. Abe is a central character in the Isaac story, and Hagar is a central character in the Ishmael story. It's almost like here is a matriarch on par with the patriarch. I want that narrative to spin on. I love it. And how could it not? And you know what? It really does. But what's so heartbreaking, so surprising really is, I mean, you know what great creative possibility, but it turns out to be so fraught. The story of Ishmael and Hagar creates a tension in the narrative, but as it spins on, it's not just some interesting literary tension that's cool. The children of Abraham's two sons become, in fact, in history, enemies. Like violent, bombing, oppressing tanks driving over little boys, enemies. So the story goes from Isaac the Jews, from Ishmael the Islam. So there aren't really any more stories in the Hebrew Bible that talk about Hagar and Ishmael, but there are so many stories in the Islamic tradition that do. We don't really keep paying that much attention to Hagar, but in Islam she's the matriarch of monotheism. It's through Ishmael that Muhammad comes. God led Hagar into the wilderness so that she could manifest a new faith, a faith would be born. The story of Hagar in the Islamic scripture is similar to the story in the Hebrew scripture. She's sent out in the wilderness with Ishmael, and she runs out of water, and in a total panic, she starts running between these two hills, looking for water. And then by the seventh run, um, Ishmael kicks the ground with his heel, and this miraculous spring um, wells out of the ground. It's called the Zamzam well. And when the Muslims make their pilgrimage to Mecca, they visit the Zamzam well. It's part of their pilgrimage to reenact Hagar's grief. So they run seven times between the hills. And then they drink from the Zamzam well. And they take some of the water from the Zamzam well back home in memory of Hagar. Hagar. 
The holiest shrine in Islam, at Mecca, according to Islam, was first built by Adam and then later rebuilt by Abraham and Ishmael when Abraham came to visit his son. In the Hebrew scripture, Abraham seems to abandon Ishmael. In the Islamic stories, he keeps, he keeps coming back to visit his son. There's something heartbreaking and beautiful about these stories. One son in one place, one in the other, Abraham trudging back and forth, the father of not one, but two faiths. Abraham loves both of his sons. The tension created by these different narratives hasn't always turned out to be creative. It's been devastatingly destructive. But couldn't it be creative? I think there's something wrong with the way we read, something that has devastating consequences. We stand, we can't stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. The word of God should knock us off our feet. Some readers say, see, Sarah was so smart. She saw that Ishmael was a wild man whose progeny would oppress the chosen people forever. Clearly, a Muslim reading could say the reverse. There are about a million other ways to read. Trying to simplify the story, follow only the dominant narrative, ignore the crucially destabilizing narratives seems not only less interesting, but actually dangerous. We need to listen for the Joker's drum. We need to hear the tune that undermines. Not because it's just a clever way to read, but because the life of the world depends on it. If scripture hardens our hearts against anyone, I'm positive that we're reading it wrong. So I think of this odd little beautifully undermining of the grand narrative little detail. When Joseph, who's an important figure in the biblical narrative, Hebrew narrative, is abandoned in the wilderness by his family, sound familiar, dying of thirst in the desert, a passing caravan of Ishmaelites comes by to save him. A caravan of Ishmaelites save the Hebrew patriarch. And this detail in the text doesn't really fit into the history of the narrative it's trying to tell. There's no way that the descendants of Ishmael could really appear so soon in the story since Ishmael wasn't much older than Joseph's grandpa. It seems like it's just this lovely little plant. The Hebrew is saved by the outcast. And then there's this. After the story of Hagar, Sarah disappears from the narrative. Just totally disappears until her death. She isn't even mentioned in the story of the near sacrifice of Isaac, her beloved son. son. Some Midrash says she dies because she couldn't face that story where her husband nearly sacrificed her beloved son. Aviva Zornberg, one of our favorite Midrashic scholars, 
says it was this, exactly this Sarah's laser beam vision that was so tempted to distangle complexity that kills her. It makes her life unlivable when structure and certainty are undermined. Abraham comes across so differently than Sarah in the Hagar narratives. Sort of tenderly, he gets up in the very early morning to see her off. He gives her food and water. He has these tendrils of concern that don't allow him to just cut the other off. He's greatly distressed when Sarah sends the woman and the boy away. Sarah dies of the way she lived. She can't meet the challenges of later life, which demands reversals, which demands a confrontation with counter-possibilities. What was true in the morning will at the evening become a lie. Sarah can't live in that tension. She can't allow the possibility of a counter-narrative. She doesn't listen for it. She kills it. There are religions, there are nations, there are people. There's a way of living that is like this, but it leads to death. Abraham's different. He's so entangled in this complex world, a lack of fixity is in his way of being. Clarity is not Abraham's thing at all. It's something more like love that drives him. He feels incapable of this surgical removal of Ishmael and Hagar that Sarah prescribes. God tells him to go ahead and do it, so he does. But if there are more stories to tell, and there always are, I like the ones where Abraham is trudging back and forth between both of his beloved sons. It seems like it would be like Abraham to do so. So near the end of Abraham's life, after Sarah has died, he marries Keturah. And according to the Midrashic tradition, Keturah is actually Hagar's real name. Hagar was just a descriptive name, the other. But Keturah was her real name. So, so far from cutting off the counter-narrative, Abraham embraces it, takes it into his heart, lays in bed with it, makes love with Hagar again. And they have many, many more children, many, many more stories. In this reading, the world is not hopelessly divided. There isn't one side or the other. Hagar and Abraham embrace in their old age. May this somehow be so.